Everybody there? Acts chapter 2? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, right? What are you laughing at? What's so funny? <laughs> You're impressed? Okay. So let's do a quick... Uh, let's do a quick review because we had the creation, defending the faith, kind of creation science last Sunday, and then it was Acts 1 before that. So it feels like it's been a while since we jumped into Acts, but uh, this is what Acts is what happens after Jesus ascends to heaven. It's called Acts, called Acts of the Apostles, because it's talking about how God leads the apostles after Jesus goes back to heaven, what the early church looks like. What I said in the first one is it's really the Acts of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is really the central figure in the book of Acts because Jesus was with the disciples uh, all through, throughout the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's walking them, he's teaching them, he's growing them. And then Jesus ascends to heaven and we're going to learn today about the Holy Spirit coming. So the Holy Spirit is really the main character in the book of Acts. But here's what happens. Uh, the beginning of Acts, written by Luke, the same guy that wrote the book of Luke, he's like, hey, I told you everything about what happened when Jesus was here. Now it's time to tell you about what continues to happen. And uh, it talks to him about how Jesus, before he ascends, he says to them, you heard from me, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus shares that. And then Jesus returns to heaven. And now at this point, there's 11 uh, apostles because Judas has died. He betrayed Jesus. And so uh, they decide, hey, we need to, this, Jesus had 12. We need 12. They choose one more Matthias, uh, Matthias, and he ends up becoming one of the one of the apostles. Okay, so that's kind of the beginning, first chapter of the book of Acts. Now we get into chapter two, and I'll be honest with you, and this is kind of going to feel like a little bit of a um, a bad example to start with, sort of. But the whole upside down kingdom, let's be honest, it does kind of connect with Stranger Things a little bit, does it not? If you've watched Stranger Things, I mean, I'm just saying it's a bad example, but I'm just trying to relate to y'all a little bit. Just work with me here a little bit, right? I'll be, here, here's, my, here's my connection with Stranger Things, and I'm not really supporting the show necessarily. When did, I heard, we heard all about it. How long did it come out ago? Like four years ago? It's been out for a long time. 2018? Okay, so probably Wendy and I are just behind the times and everything, and so when we uh, finally sat down to watch it, it was like a year ago, and we got... Like 10 minutes in, she's like, I'm scared. We turned it off. Like, so then it was like another eight months later that I was like, I'm just going to watch this thing a little bit. So I was kind of scared. I'm not going to lie. But you know, the thing about Stranger Things, and again, just to help us understand as we get into Acts chapter two, is that sometimes in, in Stranger Things, there was just things that happened that they couldn't explain at first. And I don't want you to relate the book of Acts there, but I wanna, what I want us to understand is, and we look at the Asbury Revival, and when we look at Acts chapter 2, there's some things in here that we're going to talk about. We're going to try to help you understand. But even then, when it happened, when the Holy Spirit came, they, they couldn't explain it. They didn't really know what was happening. It's like they knew it, but they couldn't fully explain it. But the main point of Acts chapter 2 is that the power for living in the kingdom has come. That's the main point. The power for living in the kingdom has come. And so we want to talk about Acts 2. We want to help you kind of understand there's a lot of stuff in here. So we're just going to jump right in. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Check it out with me. Let's just walk through verse by verse. So verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, the word Pentecost, where does that word come from? You've probably heard it before. 
usually referred to as Pentecost is when we know that the Holy Spirit came. But let's take back a little bit. The Feast of First Fruits, uh, also called the Week of Weeks, so seven weeks or 49 days, uh, that was the first feast that the Jews had. And then it came to the Feast, or then it came to the feast of Weeks. So it was the Feast of First Fruits, then the Feast of Weeks. And the term Pentecost, what it literally means is, it literally means 50. It means 50 in the Greek. It was the 50th day of the Feast of the Week of Weeks. So that's really simply what it means. It just means 50. It was the 50th day. And we got to remember that the apostles and the early Christians are still Jews by culture, so they're still participating in a lot of the Jewish cultural things that they were happening, in a lot of the Jewish festivals. So they're part, of, they're part of this festival. It's the 50th day. So we're setting the scene. And then it says in verse 2, And suddenly they came, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So uh, where, the, where were the apostles gathered? We don't really know. We just know that they were, uh, they were at this upper room in a house somewhere in Jerusalem. They're in some kind of house. And then it says, a wind and fire. Now, all throughout scripture, wind and fire are uh, significant. Uh, in the, the word spirit in the Greek, it means pneuma. And so it means God breathed. If we look at 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, and God breathed into his word as, he, as the writers wrote it, that it's literally God breathed. And so there's a real significance here that the, the spirit comes in this actual physical wind that they sense. It's visible and it's tangible, and it helps them to understand the power and the spirit of the fullness coming so that they could recognize that it was, it's okay, I got distracted for a second. The fire the fire and the wind came in a, phys- in, a, in a physical way that they could see it and they could feel it so that they could know that something had happened here. So the, sp- the wind is related to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. That's, why, that's how often throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is often described as. Uh, Jesus says with, about the Spirit, he says, it, it, it blows where it wants and you can't see it, but you know it's there. That's the working of the Spirit. And then it says, Fire, wind and fire. And fire is often displayed or represents God. God is often displayed or represented by fire. I'll give you a couple examples. Genesis 15, 17, when God makes the covenant with Abraham, it says that he passes through with this pot with fire in it. This, this pot with, with, was boiling it and this fire coming out of it. And that's, what, that's how God passes through. And then in Exodus 3, Moses meets God in what? The burning bush. Right? So representative of God. Exodus 13. Uh, do you know how God led Israel in the day? This, actually, the cloud during the day. I tricked you guys. It was a trick question. See? During the day, he leads them by this, uh, this cloud. And then at night, he leads them by fire. God represented by fire. And then in uh, Matthew 3.11, John prophesied that God would come in the Holy Spirit with fire. So very clearly, much, a lot of going back to the Old Testament, going back to what Jesus said, as the Spirit comes in wind and in fire. And then it says, the flame rested on each of them. This, this is important. There's a lot of stuff, if you just read through this, you're like, okay, it rests on each of them. Well, it's important. Everything's important. And the reason this is important is because it was to show them that the Holy Spirit was not only just for some people, but for all believers. 
So it makes it clear to say the, 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 the flame tongue came to rest on all of the believers there. It wasn't a special gift only for a few Christians, but it was for all. Now let's look at verse 4. It says, and they, be, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterness. Now, this is where we start to go like, okay, I don't fully understand this. What's happening here? This is first, when it says they were filled with the Spirit, this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When you're, if you've been baptized and you've been baptized in water, that's just an outward symbol of an inward reality. We use that a lot, but it helps us understand that. It's an outward symbol of an inward reality. Well, what's the inward reality? The inward reality is that your sins have been washed away, that now you are identified not by sin, you are identified by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come to dwell in you. Paul talks about how your body is a temple. Why does he say your body is a temple? Well, because he would be referring back to the original temple where the presence of God literally dwelled. Now for you as followers of Christ, the Holy Spirit literally dwells inside of you. God literally dwells inside of you. It says you are the temple of God. That, that helps us to understand, gosh, the importance of, of our own bodies, physically, mentally, emotionally, that the Spirit lives in us. Now, this is, this, what happened right here, these, these tongues of fire, the Holy Spirit filling them. This was a one-time event in the sense that this was the inauguration of the church. It was the inauguration, the beginning of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit baptism at salvation. So these men had already believed in Christ, but because they believe the Holy Spirit came and dwelled inside of them. Now for us, when we believe at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of you at the moment of salvation. I can't, like, it's just, it happens. It's like you believe, you place your faith in Christ, you trust him, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of you. The power to live for God comes and dwells inside of you. Why? Because Christ's blood has covered you. His sacrifice for you covers your sins, and now the Spirit comes to dwell inside of you. So these men and women had already believed, but God chose this time to have the Holy Spirit come to dwell in them. And from this point on, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in someone at the moment of salvation. Now, another sign that validated the Holy Spirit coming to dwell in them was the speaking other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. Now, understanding this isn't something that we normally see, and it could feel a little weird, but it doesn't have to be. Let's talk about it, and let's understand it. Now, it began to speak in other tongues. This means it was some kind of spoken word. We need to actually refer to Acts 2, 7 through 8. We need to go ahead a little bit because it says in verse 7, and they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native tongue? Now here's, here's kind of where people go, okay, there's two different things. One thought is, were these men, these Galileans speaking an actual language that was the true language of the people that could understand, or were they speaking some kind of utterances that, they, that we wouldn't be able to understand, but the people hearing it could understand as their own language? And this is where you interpret scripture and you try to figure it out. If you ask me my opinion, I think they spoke actual languages that they didn't know, but that the people that were hearing knew the language 
and could understand it. And this is a work of God. None of, us, none of us could do this. None of us could begin speaking another language that we have no clue of. It was, it was a sign that the Holy Spirit had truly come, that it was a work of God. And then it says, as the Spirit gave them utterances, it was clearly the Holy Spirit that allowed them to speak another language and others could understand it, even though they spoke a different language than was theirs. And again, the whole goal of this was because what we need to understand is, is that it, within this crowd, there was many, and we're going to understand this as we get a little further in Acts, there was many in here that were not Christians. There were this, there's the ones that spoke in the tongues, yes, they were the Christians, but it was to be a clear sign to those that were the non-Christians around them that the Holy Spirit had come and that something was happening. And so the, whole, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit, it marks the beginning of what we call the church, the universal church, the church not within a building, but within each person that has the Holy Spirit living in them, that is the temple of God across the entire world for all time, the church began. And you know what, you know what unifies us, guys? What unifies us more than anything is the Holy Spirit. This is what 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free. We were all given the one spirit to drink. That is what unifies us above anything else. The Spirit lives in us, and that's where we can find unity. Even when we struggle in difference with, the, with each other, which we will, even when we maybe don't agree with each other, it is the Spirit inside of us that draws us together in unity. Okay, so the Holy Spirit's come. They're speaking in these tongues. The men that aren't believers are understanding it. And it also says, we're going to get in here, that it says they were declaring the works of God. So let, let's start in verse 5 now. We're going, to read, we're going to read through verse 12. It says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews devout men from every nation under heaven. So it's explaining who these Jews were. They were devout men from every nation under heaven. So all the nations were there, and it says that they were devout men. It doesn't mean that they were Christians. It means that they were devout in their Jewish faith. And, this, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered. So all these people, they hear the wind. They, they must have sort of seen the fire. And so now they're all coming together going, what's happened here? Let's under, what's, what's going on? And it says they were bewildered. They were like, what? Like, we don't get this. We don't understand. Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native tongue? Here, I'm going to mess up on some of these, okay? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, uh, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Proselytes mean those that aren't Jewish by, uh, by culture, but they, they converted to Judaism. That's what proselyte means. Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Now, because it was the Feast of Weeks, there were the dispersed, or you've heard the word diaspora, so the dispersed Jewish people from all of the regions were coming back to Jerusalem because they lived in many areas outside of Jerusalem, even outside of Israel. They spoke different languages, and they were totally amazed to hear their own language from people they know did not speak their language. The other thing that I think, just by the way, could be a little bit of kind of like sarcasm here is, is when they say in verse 7, are not all these speaking Galileans? Galilean people, I'm just going to be honest, they were kind of known as like the country folk, 
kind of the redneck folk that maybe didn't really weren't very smart and didn't know how to speak because it was like kind of in the north part of Israel in the country. So they're kind of like, how are these people that are totally unschooled, how are they supposed to know anything? So they're kind of amazed just even in this. Now, here's another question. I'm trying to bring up questions that I think if you were reading through this and you were really meditating on this, you might ask them and to help you try to answer them. So one of the questions that you might ask is, well, who spoke in the tongues? Was it the 11 disciples or the, the 12 now with Matthias, Matthias, or was it the 120? Acts chapter 1 talked about 120 being there. A few points to consider. The diaspora Jews said in Acts 2, 7, again, are, we, are, these, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? It seems that from this, they're referring to the 12 apostles who were all, almost all were from Galilee. So kind of lumping all of the 12 apostles now together as Galileans. It is possible that each apostle could have spoken more than one language. It was the apostles speaking, so they were kind of speaking multiple languages. Uh, and then there is a good chance, though, that many of the 120 were from Galilee. So it's a question that we, we don't fully know or fully understand. We try to put all of the facts together. Um, I think that all of the 120 spoke. And spoke in tongues because I think that it says that they were gathered together, the tongues fell on all of them, and they all and they all spoke. And I think many were from the regions of Galilee around. And I believe that this was God revealing that the Holy Spirit came to dwell on all believers that were there at that moment. So the speaking of tongues was declaring the wonders of God and the praise of God. And I think this is I think this is really really important. We think about even looking at the Asbury Revival, even we think about maybe times when we're at camps and retreats and things can get kind of emotional and we're like, is God working here? I think the, uh, this is what happened. And this is, this is a revival here. This is a revival in Acts chapter two. It's like the beginning of the church and a revival all in one. And the big thing is here is that they were declaring the praises and the wonders of God. That to me is a key mark for any revival. Is God being praised are the wonders of a God being shared. I think that's really key. Because if it's just about us, then it's not really true revival. It's a lot of emotion. But when the wonders and the praise of God are being declared, I believe that there is a revival there. So like we would, many of them were trying to understand what had just happened. They saw it, they felt it, they experienced it. They even declared what had happened, but they were trying to get a grasp on what had happened. And so this is one of the things that I said to you in the first one on Acts chapter one that we're going to talk about. Is something prescriptive or is it descriptive? Prescriptive, think about it like this to help you understand. What does a doctor write out for you when you need medicine? A prescription. You guys are smart. Um, write out a prescription. That prescription says you need to take this medicine. It's a prescription. What is, when someone is, gives a description, they are explaining something of what happened. They were giving context. They're helping you understand. So is this whole speaking tongues thing, is this prescriptive or descriptive? And you know what? This is an issue that has divided the church for a long, long time. And I'm probably not going to give you a perfect answer here. Have you ever heard of the Pentecostal church? Yeah. Okay. Many of you heard of the Pentecostal church. Well, this is where they get their name from. Pentecost, Pentecostal. They would, believe, they, they, they would hold strongly to the Pentecostal church would hold strongly to the idea that speaking in tongues is a gift that, you know, we should all seek after and we should all want and desire. Some would even go as far as to say, if you don't speak in tongues, you might not be saved. Um, and so here's what I'm going to tell you. And I'm going to give you the middle of the road answer because I think the Bible gives a middle of the road answer. 
I think it's prescriptive and descriptive. And I'll tell you why. Why do I believe it's prescriptive? Well, Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, you can write that down, 1 Corinthians 14, he talks about speaking in tongues. And he says, even then, Paul's talking and saying, there was this fascination with speaking in tongues. You know, it's just interesting. We love and we hate the supernatural. We love the supernatural because it's cool and it's different. But then when it kind of is different than what we believe or what we think it should be, we don't really like the supernatural. And Paul is saying they had this fascination with speaking in tongues. And Paul tells them, this is what he tells them. He says, be careful with it and to pursue the gifts that benefit the entire body. Now, many would say that speaking in tongues, the miraculous gift of speaking in tongues, ceased when the age of the apostles ended, that when the apostles died, it ended. And I think that could be a good argument to why it's only descriptive and it's not prescriptive. But I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, you know, you should seek the gifts that benefit the entire body. And so he's saying, don't focus on that. Don't necessarily focus on the supernatural. Pursue God. And so I think it's mostly descriptive. Then I look at 1 Corinthians 14 and I see where Paul gives prescription there about it and he doesn't necessarily say that it ended. I'm trying to help you think critically about this. I am myself in continuing to, to work through this, but I don't think that any of the miraculous gifts, healings or speaking in tongues should be something that we just pursue and we pursue. We should pursue God and at times God's gonna work and we're gonna line it up with scripture and we're gonna go, does that line up with scripture? But clearly the speaking in tongues in Acts chapter two was to say the Holy Spirit has come. There is something miraculous that has happened. Now we look at, Verse 12, and it says, they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? So ultimately, some of the Jewish people that were there, they could not grasp what had just happened. And they even scoffed at them. Um, and, and then if you look at verse 13, it says, but others mocked and said, they are filled with new wine. And some of them are, you know, some of them are like, dude, these people are crazy. Like, what's going on? They're probably drunk. And, you know, there are events at times that we, we see but we cannot fully explain. And these times, when there's things that happen that people attribute to the Lord and we can't fully understand them, here's what we do. We line them up with scripture to make sure that they are biblically sound. Let me give you some example of the things that anytime that anything that happened, these things are biblical doctrines that cannot be wavered on. Jesus is the only way to heaven and Jesus is the son of God. If anything happens that people will claim to be of God, and they would say that Jesus is not the only way to God, I would say that is not biblical. That the, another one is the Bible is the authoritative word of God, that it is right in all that it says. That needs to be a staple of anything that happens. That God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 says that God created them. That it is grace through faith, not by works. That needs to be a staple, a foundation of anything that is of God. Um, and then, you know, it's even just some things that can happen where people are like, I, I feel God, I feel he's doing these things. And then they'd be like, well, but I can also live the way that I want. I would say that's not a God. Scripture clearly teaches that God is going to be moving you in direction of sanctifying you and growing you. And lastly, the church is the body of Christ and we all belong to it and live in it. And I think that's an important foundation. And the reason being is I've seen, I've seen things, I've heard people say it where they'll say, oh yeah, um, I love God. I'm a Christian, but I don't really need to go to church. And I'd be like, well, we just need to go to Hebrews and look there where it says, don't neglect being together. When the fact that we look at Acts chapter two and they say that they all began gathering together. So those are some of the staples of when there's a work and a move of God. 
that we need to know our foundations. And if they are not, then you know what? We need to be open and honest with each other about the reality that something does not line up with Scripture. So if we see something that we can't fully explain, it's attributed to a work of God, then, and we, if it is biblically sound, then you know what we do? We don't make judgments, even if we can't fully understand it, but we allow time to tell if it was legitimate. God moves in special ways at special times, and the outcome is the building of Jesus as the cornerstone and a life that bears spiritual fruit. So just the beginning, we're looking at Acts chapter 2. This is what God does, trying to make some observations, trying to understand, is it descriptive, is it prescriptive? So here's what I want you to do. You're just going to take about four minutes at your table to talk about really just, hey, what stuck out to you and why? Go ahead. Okay. All right. We'll jump back in. Just wanted to get you talking a little bit, kind of processing through things. Again, we're going to talk about this on Wednesday night, so I encourage you to come back. Write down some of the questions you have. Talk about things that you don't understand. So pick it up in verse 14. It says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my word. So Peter, the leader of this group of disciples, he stands up and he begins declaring these things about Jesus. He says, listen to me, here's what's going on. And he breaks his sermon. He kind of gives his, his first sermon. It's the first sermon in a church. And he says, I'm breaking down, he breaks down into four sections. One, there's prophecy fulfilled about Jesus, Old Testament prophecy, things they said in the Old Testament about it, Jesus that came true. Number two, he declares that Jesus is the Messiah. Remember, he's talking to Jews here. The Jews are always waiting for the Messiah. He says, Jesus is the Messiah. Number three, he says, Jesus as the Messiah has given the Holy Spirit, and number four, he helps them apply it. So let's talk about the first one. Section number one, prophecy fulfilled. This is verses 16 through 21. Uh, he, said, he does say in verse 15, he says, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it was only the third hour of the day. He's like, look, dude, it's six o'clock. No one's drinking at six o'clock. So then he gets in, he says in verse 16, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in these last days, now Joel, that's a book of Bible in the Old Testament. It's kind of a very prophetic book. It's one of the, one of the prophets in the Old Testament. And it says, in these last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes and the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that every one of you who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter says, he says what Joel spoke about in the Old Testament, it's Joel chapter two, you can go look it up. He says, hey, this is being fulfilled right now. He says the Holy Spirit was being poured out in a way that has never been before. I love it. Right at the beginning, he's going back to the Old Testament saying these prophecies are true and they are coming true now. But we need to know this. Not everything in Joel 2 was fulfilled. The prophecy of Joel is fully fulfilled if Israel would, rep would repent and turn to Jesus 
as the Messiah. So he's saying part of this in Joel is fulfilled, the fact that the Holy Spirit has come. But he says, if you want this whole idea of dreams and your daughter shall prophesy and dreams shall come uh, and those they outpour in my spirit and they'll prophesy and wonders in heaven, earth, low, he's saying some of this has happened, but not all of it has happened because ultimately what he's beginning to say in this first sermon is he is trying, he is working to use God's word to convict these, these Jewish people, to convict them that they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So he's, he's knowing that many of them would know the book of Joel and they would know that, gosh, this is saying that if we really want this to happen, we, the Jewish people, need to turn back to the Lord. We need to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. This would be important for the Jews who hold the scriptures in high esteem to see that the prophecy was being fulfilled. So this is the first thing. Peter says, prophecy has been fulfilled. Second thing is this, verses 22 through 32. Let's read it. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God through him in your midst as you saw yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let's stop there and then we'll, we'll go a little further. In verse 22, Peter reminds them that they had, some of them had seen Jesus maybe do a miracle. They had heard of him or they knew someone that had seen him. This is an eyewitness account of the miracles of Jesus. And the miracles were God's way of verifying that Jesus was who he said he was. Just like the wind and the fire that came with the Holy Spirit was God saying, and the tongues that they spoke in different languages, they were saying, this is God declaring it is who he says he was. Then in verse 23, it says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You know, one of the most difficult things for the Jewish people to believe in this time, especially after being under control of the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and now the Romans, the hard, one of the hardest things for them to believe was that their Messiah would be crucified. I mean, I think we have to have a little bit of sympathy and empathy to understand where they're coming from. They're kind of like, we've been under control of all these people, and we're, now we're under the control of the Romans. And yeah, we, we can't fully understand that our Messiah was crucified. It didn't, it didn't make sense. This didn't seem like the way a king would be treated, or the way of a king, and it sure wasn't the king that they wanted. They felt like, you know, many of them, that the Romans had won. And they were probably even trying to understand, well, the religious leaders, the Pharisees of our day, if this Jesus was really the Messiah, wouldn't they have said so? They're trying to put it all together. Yet Peter is really clear to say it was God's divine and perfect plan that Jesus would be crucified. And you know, Peter, Peter is tough. Peter implicates both the Jews and the Gentiles in the death of Jesus. He's convicting them. He says, he's saying, but all of you, both Israelites in verse 22 and then in verse 23, it says, the lawless men. He's referring to the Gentiles here, the Romans that participated in the death of Jesus. So he's implicating all of them in this. And then in verse 24, it says, God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter declares the resurrection of Jesus. He just declares it boldly. He says, Jesus, death could not hold him. He rose to be with God. Without the resurrection, you know what? Jesus would be a hero. He'd be a martyr and a great man. But by the resurrection, it proves that he is God. He is exactly who he said he was. Then in verse 25 through 35, Peter goes back to some more prophecy. 
It says, for David says concerning him, this is verse 25, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. When he says Hades there, he's talking about hell. That is the Greek translation of the Old Testament word for hell or Gehenna. Um, so, so Peter breaks down the proofs of the resurrection and the ascension. I'm going to stop right there in verse, through verses 29. Uh, this is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. What Peter goes through right here is Psalm 16, 8 through 11. And he's, Peter is actually using logic here. He's helping them. He wants to use logic to help them understand this. He's saying since David was dead and buried, he could not have been talking about himself. Look at verse 29. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So he's saying the reality is, is that you can see David's tomb. You know that he was buried. So David could not have been talking about himself when he shares this, when David prophesied. Instead, he's speaking of Jesus' resurrection and ascension. David was not ascended. When he says ascended here, what he means is not dying and then your soul going to heaven. He's saying this ascension of literally you're on earth and you're ascended to heaven. There's a guy, Enoch, it says the Lord took him up. He just ascended to heaven. God took him right up. He didn't die. We know that, we know that David died, but he's saying Jesus was ascended into heaven. So again, he's giving them this logical proof to know that this prophecy in the Old Testament is talking about Jesus the Messiah. And then he talks about, in verse 30, he says, therefore being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of all, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Then in verse 34, for David not descended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make you the footstool. So verses 32 declares that Jesus was raised up. He ascended to heaven, just giving proof of the resurrection. And then in verse 33, he says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has now poured it out. What Peter is saying here is seeing what they experienced, the wind, the tongues, the fire, declaring of God's work in different speech. He's saying this was God, again, declaring that this is his work right here and right now. And then lastly, in verses 34 through 35, for David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So, so this is Psalm 110, verse 1, what Peter's quoting. And Peter is saying that God, that David could not have been speaking of himself because, again, he did not ascend to heaven. And so in verse 36, kind of sums it all up. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that has, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. So Paul, Peter's summing it all up to say, you know what? Jesus was the Messiah. He is the Lord. He is God. And he tells him, he said, and this is the one that you crucified. Now, verse 37 says this. He says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? 
Think about this. Get yourself in their position. Have you ever done something and then you think back and you're like, oh my gosh, what did I do? This just happened to me yesterday. My wife, this happens to me a lot actually. My, yeah. My, my wife had surgery this past week, so I was doing laundry. Can I get an amen for that or no? I mean, like, thank you guys. I appreciate that. Thank you. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. And so I was like, did all laundry and I dried it. And then I was like carrying some of the clothes upstairs and she goes, you didn't put any of my leggings in the dryer, did you? I was like, I don't think so. Um, but you know, it's that moment when you're like, oh no, what did I do? Well, that's kind of a funny one. But these, the Jews are here and they're like, oh my gosh, we are pricked to the heart. We have been convicted to the heart. And they're saying, we killed the Messiah. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the weight of that? They're like, we did it. We killed the Messiah. And so they, so they say, what shall we do? And here's what Peter says to them, and this is awesome. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 300 souls, about 3,000 souls. It's a big difference. I agree. So I want to make sure I get that right. Now, here's what I want to tell you. I want to make a couple observations about this, and then we're, we're going to close up soon on the last part, the fellowship of the believers. But there's this important observations we need to take from this. One is repentance must always be a part of the gospel message. That is key. I am not ashamed to stand up here and say, repentance of your sin is always a part of the gospel message. That is what God calls us to do. He calls us to repent of our sin. It is, repentance is a change of mind or an outlook along with a change of conduct. Repentance is a constant theme of the apostles' message throughout the book of Acts. The fact we see this multiple times throughout the book of Acts in Jesus' teaching is that we can take this as prescriptive. It is prescriptive that repentance is always a mark of the gospel message. And I think a, a mark of revival, that there is a repentance of sin. And then we come into a little bit of a problem because Peter says, we'll repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. So then you might ask the question, you might have heard that or read that and go, well, does that mean I have to repent and be baptized? And so baptism is a requirement of salvation? That's a question that I asked. Now, first, there is nowhere, this is nowhere else in scripture said that baptism were part of salvation. Peter himself even says multiple other times in Acts that the forgiveness of sins is through faith in Jesus. Baptism is not connected. Acts 10.43, Peter says this, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Baptism not connected there. Number two, I'm gonna get deep in the weeds here, okay? But I think this is important. The verb repent is plural. Do you guys all understand that? I don't understand. I had to go look it up. The verb repent is plural, and so is the pronoun your, when it says, for your sins to be forgiven. On the other hand, the word be baptized is singular in the Greek. 
setting it apart from the rest of the command. Therefore, while it is part of the command, it is not tied to the forgiveness of sins. And this is why in Matthew 18, Jesus says, go therefore into all the nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's telling them, he's saying, this is a command. That's why I command for all of us to be baptized, but it's not tied to your salvation or the forgiveness of your sins. And so the promise that is given here, another observation is the promise that is given here is that if you repent, you will receive the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. That is a promise of God. That is not a maybe, that is a promise of God. And Peter makes it clear when he says, for all of you that are your sons and your daughters and for all that are far off, Peter says right in the beginning, this is for the Jews and this is for everybody else. And this would stun many of the Jews. And you know what's so cool in this? Peter brings together perfectly what happens at salvation. The human side is repentance. The God or divine side is God's sovereign call on our lives. They work perfectly together. God calls us and we repent. God draws us and we repent. That is the gospel message. You know, repentance of sin isn't to make you feel bad about yourself. It's to realize when you realize the depth of your sin, but Jesus bore that on the cross, it makes his death and resurrection so much more sweeter. And then 30,000 souls were saved that day from death to life. They repented, they were baptized. Why were they baptized? Because they immediately identified themselves as a follower of Christ. Now, I wanted to, I, I, this has gone long, so I'm just gonna follow up here. I'm gonna finish up here. I know you've been listening a lot, but in verses 42 through the end, it talks about this fellowship of believers. And here's what happened. So the church went from 120 to 3,000. I would call that a revival. I don't know about you. There was repentance, there was forgiveness of sins, there was baptism, and now it says, here's what they did. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So what did they start doing? They start learning more about Jesus. But where do they learn from him? Well, they want to go to the right source. So they go to the apostles who spent time with Jesus, who knew his words. And then it says fellowship. And fellowship is different than just hanging out. Fellowship means koinonia in the Greek. And fellowship means breaking of bread and prayer. Now, the breaking of bread, if you look in 1 Corinthians 15, where it talks about communion, it says that they always had a common meal before they had communion. They would have a meal together, and then they would take communion. So that's probably what this means here. And then they, would, and then they were praying. And it says that uh, in verse 43, that, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So it's the apostles who were having these miraculous signs and wonders happen. This was God working through the apostles. It is descriptive, telling us what had happened to them. What is prescriptive is when God does things that are miraculous in our lives, it's all for his glory. When God does things that we don't fully understand, it is be all for his glory. We don't need to seek after these. We live for the Lord and allow him to work through us. And then in verse 44 through 45, it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, they may have sold everything because they believed God was returning soon. They could have thought, you know what? God's going to come back. Jesus is going to come back really soon. So like, let's just sell everything, live together. Or because they were moved by the Spirit to live in this way of love and care, or maybe it was a combination of both. Now, this way of living was not continued on by all Christians, and it's why we're not commanded to live this way. The early church fathers didn't command to live this way. Therefore, I would say it's more descriptive than it is prescriptive, but some people go, we want to live in this way. 
This was a divine and radical way of living that showed to all around them that they were changed. And so then to end here, in verses 46 through the end, it says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So they didn't automatically go, oh, we're Christians now. We're removing ourselves from everything where we've ever been. No, they can, why did they continue going to the temple? Because that was, that was their culture. That's what they were doing. So I think, you know what they were doing there? They were going and evangelizing there. They were being like, we got to tell you about Jesus. We got to tell you about the Holy Spirit. I think in the same way, when the Lord saves you and throughout the rest of your life, he's not calling you to remove yourself from the world. He's saying, where you go, bring the gospel there. So I'll end with this, three applications. Number one, the Holy Spirit. Jesus foretold about it. His death and resurrection ascension gave him the right to give it to us. This is the power we live by every day. It's what we're promised at salvation. Number two, Peter's sermon. It was proof that Jesus is the Messiah. It was used to convict the Jews. And we learn that every gospel message should have repentance for the forgiveness of sin, receiving the Holy Spirit, and baptism. And number three, the church began. The way they lived together and the way we live together in unity is what will impact the world around us. It doesn't mean we won't have differences, but it's about how we work through those differences. We are meant to be lights where we go. Let me pray, and we're going to end in worship through God. Lord, God, I thank you uh, for just your word and your truth as we look in the book of Acts and we see what it looks like to live in this upside-down kingdom. God, I pray that your word spoke, not me, about the Holy Spirit, about Jesus as the Messiah. Lord, I pray that students were maybe convicted about their own sin, or maybe there's some in here, God, that realized they've never believed in you, that today they would place their faith in you that your death was for them, for their sins that they could never pay, that you rose again and you were in heaven ruling, and that, God, today they would believe that, and the Spirit would come immediately to come dwell in them, and they'd be the temple of God. So I pray that we just give you worship here. In Jesus' name, amen.